This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by another One Heat Minute production. It Came From The Deep. It Came From The Deep is the latest show from Maria Lewis, author and host of Josie and the Podcasts, and myself, Blake Howard. We are hosting a narrative podcast, an audio book of Maria's incredible book, It Came From The Deep, and an audio book after show where we take apart every chapter as it happens and break them all apart, break it down, inspirations, craft, uh, uh, everything about the sort of the town that it was based on and where it was based, which is the Gold Coast in Queensland of Australia where the story is set. Um, and we haven't yet, but we will definitely be diving in to some Murrish people there along the way. It is not in the One Hit Minute Productions feed, just the trailer is. So if you search for It Came From The Deep in any podcast app, you will find it. Have a listen if you love your mer friends, because mermen, they love to. for calling Don and J. Trump election war room. Please hold for the next available agent. Trump national war room. Hi, I wanted to mention something I did not personally witness, but was relayed to me by someone who's at a, a town facility in Arizona. Okay. Um, so my fiance is working at a, at a town facility in uh, Pima County, Arizona, and she's stationed next to uh, someone for the last few days and according to her, every now and then she will hear like the ripping of paper. She can't see, but she'll hear the ripping of paper and what sounds to her like um, chewing. And so her, she has an idea of this guy's political leanings. And her theory, her fear is that whenever he comes across a ballot that went for President Trump, that he's actually ripping out the section where the president votes and is, you know, is eating it to destroy to destroy the evidence and she doesn't this isn't somebody she knows very well um she's only working with a few days and with everybody wearing masks she couldn't even really describe him except to say that he had blue eyes well no he had like big eyes like big googly eyes but his fur was blue and he was like nom 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 me love ballots nom, 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 so yummy nom, 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 nom. ladies and gentlemen welcome to all the president's minutes i'm your host blake howard joining me for this, the 124th minute of Alan J. Pakula and Robert Redford's 1976 masterpiece is a, a huge friend of the show. Um, so one heat minute productions literally does not exist without the incredible listeners to firstly one heat minute, last 12 minutes of the Mohicans, increment vice, all the president's minutes contingent, Miami nice, Josie and the podcasts. Now it came from the deep and it's coming up very soon. Zodiac Chronicle and, and a couple of little dalliances, mini projects like three hands that have popped up without our incredible listeners. And the person that I'm talking to now was such a, a huge part and it, it created a huge dialogue with me behind the scenes in one heat minute. And we had so many great fruitful chats and literally that's why I do this. I get my favorite cinematic texts. I talk to great people about them and unpack them and basically endurance test them. And what's been great with both of the projects that I've been the host exclusively, um, I can unequivocally say that they hold up to the pressure tests. And I think that that's what we do. Great. Um, so this man, I would like to announce to everyone, his formal position in our, uh, in our hierarchy 
He is the chief executive officer of memes uh, for One Heat Minute Productions. Most of them he runs by me in direct messages before he sort of publicly puts them out there. Um, He's just, uh, and very recently also recorded a great call and uh, showed the WAV file of him reporting potential voter fraud on one of the Trump lines, which was immensely amusing. Um, And hopefully you would have heard it at the beginning of the show because that's how I'm actually introducing you on this episode. Um, So he is my friend. And friend of the show, John Peaklin. John, thank you so much for being a part of all the President's Minutes. You're back. Blake, I am back. Thank you. We have not spoken since our contention, uh, contention meetup back in April. Things are much better in Oz. Not, not as much in the States, but uh, thank you not much as, for having me on. Not as far as the virus, but there's been some other positives. There has some other positives. And kudos to you for picking this year of all years. <laughs> about, you know, a, a corrupt, a maniacal, delusional president who, uh, you know, t- took his time grasping reality and, and, uh, and doing the right thing. And I have to tell everybody, I was, I was delighted to be invited onto the show. I was, uh, it was last Sunday. I was, I was in my robe opening a Twinkie for breakfast, opening my New York Times, and out of page 20 fell a typewritten <laughs> note from Blake. Uh, asking me to be on the show, so I appreciate the appreciate your attention to detail there. That is, that is the uh, what what a lot of people don't know is I actually sent out uh, re- versions of the Zodiac letter to the current people <laughs> who are invited onto our next project. So uh, <laughs> this is the Zodiac speaking. Um, so, uh, but so you know, guests are currently trying to decode your invitation. <laughs> <laughs> no, not not in code. Just you know, oh, just the, just the standard letters. There are small ciphers on each of them that each of the guests that have been invited have to unify to create the full cipher so that's fine um there's only 40 or so guests so far so they'll they won't have any trouble doing that look um you did want to mention something off the top a special thank you that has been aching at you since the very first appearance on one heat minute Uh, i would i might not have been aware of one heat minute productions and and one heat minute the first podcast zipped out from my very dear friend patrick ayers uh who is a friend since college and uh we've been in touch ever since no relation to jedediah ayers that i know of but um but he is a very good friend and a very good friend for, for recommending this. So I felt awful not um, um, giving him <laughs> props in, in my OHM um, appearance. And so here I am doing it now for the record. Thank you, Patrick, for listening. Uh, we appreciate you sharing the show. Like, honestly, I say this and most of the culminating points of every single show, it's that, you know, sharing and getting it to people who you know are going to dig it is exactly how how our show has grown so much. It's like people have the word of mouth and, and, and that's how we get such great audience members and listeners and contributors. But I'm throwing you in the deep end, my friend, because I know you're such a crazy fan of heat for folks who didn't listen to your one heat minute episode, go back and check that out. Um, he's in the first of a two parter of the final episode. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I think it's, a, I think I'm the second, I think I'm the second of three or four. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in, you're second of three or four in that, in, final that credits, yeah. in, in that final moment. Um, but, you used to be related to a Chicago cop, but now this is called a greatest investigation movie of all time. Ha- have you had any relationship with this movie up until now? Well, um, so, so as Blake mentioned, so my, my six degree connection to heat was that I'm, I'm a nephew and uh, grandson of, of some career Chicago police officers, some of whom may have crossed paths with Chuck Adamson, who of course inspired Michael Mann to do heat. Um, I was trying to mine some connections to all the president's men. I will say that my first jobs out of college were selling retail advertising in <laughs> newspapers. Yes. First in, first in Cincinnati for two major metros there, then in Dayton. And um, briefly 
uh, at the Chicago Tribune. Um, I will. It was so that was like 2000. So, you know, right, right before the world of newspaper advertising <laughs> bottomed out. I'm not going to say away. It out. I'm not going to say it bottomed out because I left, <laughs> but I'm not not saying. <laughs> yeah, it was. There was definitely. There's, uh, you know, coincidences, correspondences, whatever you want to call them. So, so fair to say I have spent considerable time 25 years ago, you know, where newspapers were, were printed and assembled and, and all that good stuff. Did you get to see in those gigs, like the practices of a journalism floor? Because what I've been told is the advertising department of, uh, especially in, Austra- in Australia, the advertising departments of newspapers locally are very swish. They have all the nice equipment, nice offices, everything. And usually you cross a boundary in the building over to the journalism floor. And it's just, it is just a hell zone because it's just that big open plan offices, paper everywhere, especially in those days, paper everywhere, desks, all the curmudgeon journalists, cadets running around like crazy, urgency, craziness. Did you, Was that ever the setup at any of the papers you worked no, for? No, I, I can't speak too much to like 2020 newsrooms, but, um, and even honestly, even at the time, I mean, we were, you know, newspaper advertising was was um, big enough where, you know, a newspaper, the Cincinnati Inquirer, in this case, uh, is what I first worked for, took up several floors. And like advertising was its own floor and a half, kind of. Yeah. Um, we never we never really interacted too much with the journalism floors. I mean, I, I, I got to slash had to go to the print facility a couple of times, like the actual where they did the printing press. Um, which was neat to see. And I mean, that as much I can say, at least in the late nineties, didn't look too much different than what you might expect from all the presidents of that era. Um, But yeah, it was, it was an exciting time to be, like I said, it was sort of the tail end of newspaper advertising, but it was, it was a fun time to be in that industry. I had majored in, in advertising at at school in Cincinnati. And so it was a great first job. It was a great um, sort of entree into the, into the working world. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I was, I was glad to have a little, a, a tiny little tie into all the president's men. But as, but as far as like, I know a lot of people have talked about when the movie kind of came on their radar. And I, so I was thinking about that. And I think, um, so like in high school, I was obsessed with Saturday Night Live um, and Saturday Night Live books. And so I, I had read Wired and had learned that it was made into a much and appropriately maligned movie. Um, starring Michael <laughs> Chiklis, who I completely forgive. I, I love the shield. I like Michael Chiklis. He like the uh, the statute of limitations has passed for his <laughs> for his offenses. But, but there's a scene where he's he's writing. You know, the, the basic premise is the the angel, the ghost of John Belushi, is riding around with this guardian angel. And at one point, he learns that Bob Woodward is doing his biography, and the angel and the angel says. Um, he's going to do for you what he did for Bob for, I'm sorry. He says, the angel says he's going to do for you what he did for Richard Nixon, which is a very funny line. But and then I realized like that kind of piqued my interest. Like, what does he mean? And that's when I, that's really how I became aware of the the, the book and the movie and, and all that. And I, I feel like I probably did see it on a VHS copy in high school or maybe early college. Didn't really imprint, you know, until, until years later. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's that's how that's how the movie in general became on my radar. How much have you revisited it in 2020? Because I know that you and I offline have talked a few quite times. A, bit. a few oh, times. Yeah. I mean, quite a bit because of this podcast, honestly. Like, I mean, you know, I, having finished OHM um, and uh, when you launched this podcast at a time, you know, here in the States where it's like, 
what better time to, you know, to, like I said, to talk about a, a, a president and a government in turmoil and, um, you know, a population who's, who's uh, you know, breaking apart kind of and at odds with each other. So, um, so it's been a, a nice distraction from, <laughs> it's funny, it's, it's been a nice distraction from current events podcasts, but also it, it sadly mirrors, you know, a lot of, you know, what, <laughs> current events are and someone I, I wish I could remember who someone had had wisely described it as like a almost like a salve like a balm yes uh, you know a film to harken back to the days when actions had consequences and but at the same time I feel like it's um it's just a depressing mirror in the sense that like you know Woodward and Bernstein worked their ass off to get these you know by today's standards kind of like you know Mickey Mouse scandal charges out and connections <laughs> out. Meanwhile, you've got in 2020, you've got much bigger things unfolding in real time all across the world by people, you know, on phones. And it's just like, all right, okay, when is the, when is the, uh, when's the resolution of all this? When does this get tidied up with a bow here? It's so it's really, it's really funny because I think that line, like journalists and, and people who appreciate the media and accountability of politics took the lionization, I guess, like whether it's intended or unintentional, it's like, again, the great, the best and worst thing about being an artist is that once you finish making the art, it's not yours anymore. Like it's for other people to interpret. And that's what our show does a lot. But I, I think it's really funny that like from a journalistic point of view, it's like people digging, wanting to find their own kind of big story and the dream, then the sort of benchmark dream of any, you know, real, great investigative journalist is to get a story that is meaty enough that and worthy enough of their time and 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 in the public interest to be able to uncover you know some kind of malfeasance whether it's corporate malfeasance whether it's political malfeasance whether it's religious malfeasance in some of the films that we've talked about inside a you know spotlight this um those sorts of films all have that kind of kinship but in the worst way possible you see here the lessons out of the demise of the nixon administration for the GOP and for Republicans in general, and especially the way that they treated it is like, and Ziegler himself is the hostility towards journalists. It's not having a former journalist as the White House press secretary. It is having a, you know, a person who can be hostile towards them, can, you know, completely deflate things, can diffuse things, can just sort of play interference with things and go on the company line, non-denial denials. And it's like, Oh, all the things that Nixon did, you know, having humility, um, having restraint, you know, you know, being forthright with, you know, even with the great hubris that you learn in Leon Nafok's great podcast, Slow Burn, Nixon releasing the goddamn, uh, the goddamn, yeah, the, the goddamn tapes and the goddamn uh, transcripts of the tapes so that people yeah. could compare them. You know, those things, think of how long it took Trump to even, uh, be asked about his tax returns, which should have actually been submitted prior to him running for president. And then the New York times breaks that story this year. So it's just kind of crazy about it. I keep looking at this and like every person who is now in a position of power in that Republican party has taken the lessons of all the president's men and gone, what did Ni what could, what more could Nixon have done to stay in power right. and just flat out refuse for it to, you know, to, 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 to relinquish it once I have my nails in it. And so every time I watch it now, I'm just like, man, every single one of these guys, like they're, you know, if this was the Trump administration, they'd be erasing every one of those tapes. They'd yeah. be destroying equipment. It would just be a free for all. Yeah. I, I, I think I've, I've 
said or maybe even tweeted like you know somewhere richard nixon is looking up and being like <laughs> where was this republican where was mitch mcconnell when i was in office? <laughs> he would have covered my ass to the end oh yeah absolutely and sort of to that point i know I, i've i've told you this you know direct message wise but it's um i am blown away by how well you know with your familiarity with like the real intricate nuances of American politics. So um, it's, it's a, another double-edged sword. I am super impressed and grateful that you are so familiar with it. I wish a good portion of our voting populace <laughs> was 1% as, as familiar and in touch with it. But it, it so. is, it, it is just a, a, I have, I have the lucky perspective of being slightly objective in this and then having researched it and, you know, reading, you know, when you, when you deep dive on all the, you know, the, the Woodward and Bernstein books that lead up to the, you know, to Nixon's exit and then Wood Woodward's books just in general, vocationally reading them and then some great Nixon books and just some great books on the CIA. Um, very recently, I got a great one called Mary's Mosaic about, you know, the CIA and JFK and things like that. It's a great sort of conspiracy theory book. But like once you read those and you start, start to see you start to sort of piece together these administrative things, you just start learning. And, and this is how it's pressure tested, you know, and, and, I, I, I don't take any credit. I take all the credit from the research that I did. It's, it's, it's about that, but it's like, it's just one of those things that you keep talking to people and you keep being educated on. And, and I, I think knowing things doesn't make you any, doesn't give you any more comfort when it comes to politics in America or Australia. In fact, it makes you more infuriated and you have to measure your infuriation and where you're going to put it because it's like, sure. one of those. right. And, and like most Americans, I, I think I can say that I, I know almost fuck all about Australian <laughs> politics or politics. Like, gun to my head, I think I know the prime minister's name, president's name, but um, but I, I, I am embarrassed to say how unfamiliar I am with uh, any, any others except our own. But there's so much to know about ours. But look, this is what I'm asking you to promise on behalf of every guest, all 123 guests that have come before you that aren't Australian or from the UK is that next Australian election, I really just want to hear your punditry. I really want, I really want you guys to just do, you know, I want some tweets about uh, Scott Morrison or Scott. I was going to say Scott Morrison. That was my guess. There you go. I was going to say Scott right, listen, Morrison. Here's the deal. If Scott Morrison, uh, you know, publishes the number to a hotline to uh, announce voter fraud. I will absolutely prank that hotline. Oh, please do! Please name. do! Please. And I'll leave. I'll, I'll leave a plug for Oasis. <laughs> oh, please do! And then, uh, and then the Australian Federal Police will be at my door. But that's okay. What we're going to do right now, John and I, is we're going to play the game that we play always on the show. We're going to watch the minute in question. 124 is the minute we have. Um, it's a great exchange because it just shows the tension. Now, you know, the stakes have never been higher, uh, and. Um, it's just a, it's a really great tension minute that we're going to watch now. If you're queuing it up, it's two hours and three minutes on the dial to two hours and four, but 124 for those who play along with one heat minute productions, John and I are going to watch it right now. You guys are going to listen along and then we're going to come back and talk about it. Manager Clark McGregor met with reporters. Using innuendo, third person hearsay, unsubstantiated charges, anonymous sources, and huge scare headlines. The post has maliciously sought to give the appearance of a direct connection between the White House and the Watergate, a charge which the Post knows, and half a dozen investigations have found, to be false. The hallmark of the Post's campaign is hypocrisy, and its celebrated double standard is today visible for all to see. 
What do you mean? No, I'm not talking to you about Haldeman or anybody else. Then what went wrong? Nothing. Just tell us what went wrong. Didn't, didn't you say that the FBI had the information on Haldeman in the no. files? Because we have it in the notes from the conversation you know with what? you on the telephone right we, here. We have to go talk to your boss if you don't talk right. to us. No. What, 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 what the hell are you talking about? He doesn't give I'll us any everything. We're not trying to get anybody into trouble. We're just trying to find out if we made some errors. If we made a mistake, then we'll come off the story. Just tell us if we made a mistake. Tell us if we screwed up. God, I love it. I'm not talking. You know so how this works. You know how this yes, works. I I know. <laughs> Mid-sentence. But I just, I love, and I don't know, John, to call me like old-fashioned or whatever. I just love that they're so proud and they're so dedicated to this story that the prospect, I mean, I know they've probably cut a corner or they've made a mistake or heard what they wanted to hear or, or you know, taken, taken something on like, you know, everything is pointing to it and maybe not had that one definitive, you know, moment that they needed. But man, the, the kind of humility, the humility to go and say what went wrong. Like we, we need to know. And, and especially Woodward, they're going, we will come off the story. And so I, I just, I don't know, there's something about that that's special in this scene. And then the urgency with the, the FBI guy, Joe, um, and he just doesn't want to hear them. He's, he's well and truly and probably earned like having enough with these guys. But um, yeah, it's just a, a, like a phenomenal scene for me. I, I love it to pieces. Yeah, we get, we get such a concentrated dose of their um, good cop, bad cop um, routine. Like whereas with, uh, oh boy, and I'm blanking. The woman who did accounting for creep where they spend all that time in their house. Jane Alexander is the actress, right? But Jane the, Alexander. She, the character's name is bookkeeper because they don't actually give the name. Oh, um, okay. Okay. All right. Well, act- I remember. Her name. So like, it's a, it's a, such a like, um, you know, concentrated dose of that sort of routine or even the routine they do with Sloan where, you know, it's like, listen, you, you know, we're just, we're trying to help you, you know, please help us. <laughs> and there's one point I even caught, you know, in, in, you know, the era of 2020 where, Bernstein almost gives the equivalent of, can I speak to your manager? You know, yeah. where he's like, listen, I think we'll stop to talk to your boss. Like, that's it. But, but just that, yeah, that, that just like rapid fire back and forth. Like, what did we do wrong? Tell us what we did wrong. If something wrong, you know, you, you said there was Haldeman was in the notes. What happened? I, I just, I love it. I think it's, it's so essential though. It's like, they need to know. And here, the fact that it's out and what, what has been great for these moments, I think the, the gravity of this moment I just want to register is in every reveal that they've done so far, the best that they've gotten is non-denial denials because it's just reinforcing that the story's there. But the fact that they're saying no mm-hmm. and, and it's almost like a last gasp no because they're not saying because Sloan himself, Slippery Hugh Sloan, um, who I've, I've, that's the, 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 the name I've coined for him in this show, but Sloan, Sloan himself has come out and said that he didn't reveal it. The thing right. is that no one is saying it's not true. Yeah. And so the fact that people are now uh, retreating and, and also that's reinforcing the upcoming um, Detroit scene, that's what's scary is that people, you've emboldened people to retreat. And and, right. and and especially sources who've gone on the record for you, you're emboldening um, you're emboldening the you know the antagonist here, and you're and you're really making people just want to retreat to get the hell out of it. And I think it it encapsulates what I assume is kind of the frustration of journalism at that age, where it's like you know there is no you don't have digital recordings of phone calls, you don't have mm-hmm. you know uh, emails archived forever, like you just have 
the word that, you know, on the telephone, somebody said this to me and I'm, I'm, you know, reporting it back. And it's so easy for them to say like, no, I didn't, I never said that. And I'll deny it if you ask me. So, And um, even Bradley so many times, how good are these notes? Yeah. Verbatim. Exactly. How good are these notes? Yeah. Verbatim. How good are these notes? Verbatim. And like yeah. having people scribe them. So you've got multiple, multiple journalists that are there to, you know, witness that that's exactly the turn of phrase or that's actually what they said. And yeah. Um, so this, I, I kind of did as you wanted <laughs> for OHM, I did like some, some frame by frame type homework. Can I tell you an interesting fact that I found out that hopefully it wasn't covered in, in the minute before. Please. So, uh, leading up to this minute, um, we're watching in, in the, uh, in Bradley's office, we're watching the TV with Ronald Ziegler denying yes. everything, which by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm creeping into the previous minute, but how exciting do they make four guys watching a TV <laughs> exchanging glances? Like there's no, nobody in the scene says anything. They're yeah. all just reacting to him and looking at each other and you, you read everything. Bradley's anger with them, their, you know, disbelief with what they're seeing. Just like, I, I didn't, I didn't set a stopwatch, but I was like, I think there's at least a minute, a, a minute and a half of four guys watching TV in an office, <laughs> like a little teeny color air TV. Um, so, so, so the minute before, so we go from Ronald Ziegler right into our minute with Clark McGregor. Interesting fact, I thought, number one, Ronald Ziegler started college at Xavier University in Cincinnati. Same <laughs> um, but two, both men died on February 10th, 2003, same day. Ziegler and McGregor. Ziegler and McGregor. They were, um, and I, you know, once I noticed that I started, you know, thank you, Wikipedia, uh, um, you know, one was like 17 years older than the other. I don't think this was like a a very ripple effect Watergate, you know, conspiracy or anything. But it's just <laughs> weird that they they happened to to pass away on the same day in 2003. So I thought that was weird. And Ziegler, not a not a media guy, not a journalism guy. Obviously, ends up being a you know who he is in in real life. Um, yes. Uh, uh, the you know. Uh, Nixon press secretary, but nonetheless, not, not necessarily a media guy. And then McGregor, of course, we've heard his name before. Um, sure. It's no, so it's, it's, I, I love that moment when you hear McGregor and you're like, Oh, McGregor was one of the guys. Like yeah. he was, he was like, of, co of course, when, of course, when you're, you're interviewing someone from the committee to reelect the president about how false the events are, it's in his vested interest right then at that moment as a radio interview to go, yeah, yeah, that's all lies. Yeah. That's all, that's all falsity. So, you know, that's and definitely not me. And it's, you know, equal parts amazing and depressing how close his, you know, rebuttals tie with Kaylee McInerney or Sean Spicer or, or uh, uh, mm -hmm. Sarah Huckabee, like any, any of the Trump people just like, um, you know, the media is fake. This is fake. This is false. And I even caught on to the, I hooked on to uh, McGregor's phrase, the, the post celebrated double standard. Yeah. And I'm like celebrated double standard has been reduced to just fake news. Like that's it. Fake news. Yeah. Yeah. Any, yeah. <laughs> anything that, it, you know, reflects poorly on us, fake news, not celebrated double standard. I, um, I can't tell you how much I fucking hate the phrase fake news. I it know. is oxymoronic. If you say it, yeah. you're an idiot. Like it's, it, 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 it's, you can have, alternative media outlets, you know, especially in the age of even something as simple as like film criticism, you can have Manola Dargis write a film review for the New York times and someone can go on blogspot.com and write a review for the same film. I guarantee you that the skill 
with which they both undertake that and then the pressure of an editorial policy around it are two drastically different things. They might come out with two insightful reviews or whatever the case may be, but because you never know an emerging voice might be coming out on a blogspot.com and they're amazing. But just as at, from the outset, someone that experienced, someone who's worked in papers for such a long time, someone who's in the industry, someone who's as tried and true. And, and I just think that like so many of these, like there are legitimately times when media embellishes things. You've got tabloids and gossip magazines and all those sort of things, which I just think are flagrantly bullshit. And I think the only reason they exist is because people like, to be told yarns. You now I've got my own yarns. I've heard some fun yarns about, right. you know, in, in the week that Sean Connery passed away, I heard some fun yarns about some random hookups uh, that he had during his career with, you know, other famous attractive women. And it's all probably false. It's all probably false, but I enjoyed listening to the yarn yeah. while it was being told to me. But nonetheless, I just think that that whole fake news thing is such a, it's so open and so candid. Yes, it's open and candid though to what it is, which is like, unless you are flagrant propaganda that is completely step to step in line with the rhetoric that we're saying, you're fake. And that's dumb because it's like the fact that people cannot be objective. Um, and yet, and, and I think, you know, on a, on a very recent episode, the great Dario Linares from the cinematologist, cinematologist podcast said, you know, truth is a negotiation in 2020. And that is such an apt phrase because it's so annoying that you can't have a fact, a fact-based discussion, a fact-based argument. And if you're listening to this episode in order, you would have recently heard Caroline Goodall in the previous episode, the great actor. And I introduced her with that, with a, the former Australian prime minister, Malcolm Turnbull attacking a Fox news broadcaster on one of our shows, Q and a, a panel show saying that, you know, your, your media company, your media empire has made things that should be, you know, for science and engineering and, and, and economic, you know, these things of feeling and belief when they're just facts, like this is what it is. Right. So um, yeah, that's what's exceptionally frustrating here because even here, as much as the Nixon playbook builds the blueprint for what we're seeing now, at least when they're faced with the undeniable facts and confessions and everything, they concede. Right. Yeah. Someone on a, on a recent episode I listened to, and I, w- I wish I knew it was, said, um, you know, despite all of Nixon's flaws and, and you know, historical, uh, you know, just, you know, shortcomings, at least the, he had the decency to resign. Like he saw the writing on the wall and said, you know, country above party, country above self and, and did the right thing. Uh, so that's, you know, 2020 in a nutshell is that we are pining for the decency of Richard Nixon. <laughs> if we could, if we could distill it down to a, a motto, uh, that's, that's what we have. Pining for the decency of Richard Nixon. That should be on a t-shirt and I'll speak to the, <laughs> I'll, I'll speak to the chief executive officer of memes from one eight minute to see if, uh, one eight minute productions.com. <laughs> shop. Find that there might be soon, might be soon. Yeah. We'll talk off air. Um, but um, you know, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a crazy time. And you know, the, the hostility and also Joe is a fascinating figure, like in this movie as a, as a, as a guy, because early on he's giving Bernstein stuff. They're having a few of those phone calls. There's one in furiously in his apartment. That's you know pretty close in proximity to this, but that moment where he gives that congratulatory sort of, Oh, we didn't have that. We didn't have yeah. that he was part of the, you know, he was the architect. 
there is such a difference that I want to talk about in Joe. And I think it's just a great performance thing. I think it's a great directing thing. I think it's beautifully written by Goldman is he's set up almost to be baiting Bernstein, like to get them back on the hook, to get them under watch, to get them there. And, and, and now in this moment, when he's revealing these bits of information, they're trying to get it out so that they can operate more freely. It's almost like he's come and hit his ceiling as well. So this whole scene, like he's completely hostile. Can I, can I rewind a bit just for the visuals before we even get to yes. Joe? Yeah, yeah, great. So, I, so the, our minute opens up on the car park, as you would say, parking garage over here. Um, and uh, so this, this shot, you know, we're still hearing McGregor's tirade about the media and the post. And we see Woodward and Bernstein getting into their car and going down the ramp. And this mirrors um, the shot, the, the same shot when they're leaving after they get the creep personnel list, right, from Kay. Yes. Um, so not only does it mirror that shot, but I'm going to ruin some movie magic if, if no one else has yet. But if you, because I did scrubbed back to the two shots just to make sure I was remembering right. It was clearly taken minutes apart. Like, yeah. like every other car at the top level of that garage is in the same spot. So what they, the only difference is in the first one, there's like a white, giant white sedan parked on the ramp that they have to go around. And in the second one, the one we're talking about, there's a woman walking up and it's like, they almost go out of their way to hit her. On the yeah, way like, down. It's like they went to left-hand drive and then they yes, come down yeah. and, and I was like, hey, this is the United States, man, move over. And then you see them yes. move over to the right way. So I, I don't mention that as a film flub or anything like, you know, well done. I'm sure they would have got away with it, you know, in, in, in 76. You know what? But, um, they they got away with it up until 2020 in yeah. November until yeah. right now. <laughs> until I just, until I just you know, ruined the magic for them. So it was only funny because I noticed when I was first studying our minute, I was like, there's a ton of Volkswagen Beetles on this garage. Like maybe they were just everywhere back then. And then when I went back to say, to, to, to you know, I went back and watched it again, the, the whole movie again, I realized I was like, this is the exact same shot of them going down the ramp. And then I noticed the car. So what they probably did was like, went down, went around the block, went back up, went by. You, know, you so. did it again. Well done, well done, Mr. Pecula. Um, so, but I just thought, you know, this is one of very few kind of, um, I don't know, traveling shots or transition shots. Like most times, you know, we establish where we have to go and then we're there. Like we're at uh, uh, Jane Alexander's door or we're at Sloan's door or we're walking in Georgetown, you know, up up to the house. This is a, a, a sort of a rare case in the movie where it shows them, you know, going from one place to another and just the you know like like you said back with ohm about how you can't read too much into anything just like the the symbol is the the visual of them going down 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 the ramp and then when they pull out to the street if you notice they are the only car going a certain way yeah it's blocked they're, they're literally going against the flow like no one else gives a shit about watergate this is society coming this way and here come woodward and bernstein in their little car you know, going totally the other way. And and also you just cottoned onto another great bit of symbolism there is that the last time that we really saw them was when they would like go down that ramp and go off on yeah. that journey was when they would list like, well, they had a list, but I mean, listless as in they didn't know what doors were going right. to open. They knew that there was a story. They knew that if people were willing to go on the record, there was something behind it. So both times it was sort of like into an abyss, but they weren't, you know, they weren't sure. And and now at least with this time, they've gone to justice because they're back, they're back in an abyss in some, yeah. in some respects, because they're going, how did this get wrong? How did, how, how did this go wrong? What, what could have possibly happened to lead us to this point? And then when they go to Joe, 
it's the first time that he's on his own turf. This is, and this is what I was glad you gave me this minute because this is one of the few areas where I, I think I have a little beef with the editing in the sense that, as you mentioned, we've talked to somebody at Justice before. Yes. But it was, it was just, you know, in and among so many other sources. And so now they're at like, this is the, you know, the low point of Act Two where they've just been like disproven and, you know, their victory was blown up into a defeat. And, and so, but there, despite the fact that we do see them go down the garage and we do see them go down the street, there's no establishing shot of the Department of Justice building. Like we're yeah. just suddenly yeah. in a hallway, which speaking of more kind of like, I think um, sort of symbolism is that we're in this dark hallway. There's a light at the end of the tunnel and we are moving away from it. Like, we are, <laughs> we are, like in various silhouette. And I, I, you would, uh, I forget the name of the cinematographer. He did the Gordon Bible. Willis, Gordon, Gordon Willis. Willis the darkness. Um, just so many shots of this were like, I, 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 well, confess, I was watching it on my laptop and I was watching it over and over again. And I kept turning up the brightness to make sure it wasn't. <laughs> I'm like, nope, these guys are just in silhouette. That's, that's, that's how it's, it's meant to be. So when my, my only like. Oh, like, I, I just want to, I want to come on your point. Yeah. I love, I love that we, we, we're listless and then we are in the corridors of power. We're in, you know, we're in the justice department. And I think this is where you're like, you can totally have beef because we've never been in this building before, but I think it all plays into the point where, you know, when they're looking at this movie's editing has the strangest alchemy, some scenes, it adds all the breath and life is in the spaces between the things that are being said. And other scenes are in the frenetic pace that you just catch and the way that it cuts between shots and th- those sorts of things. And so the no establishing shot here is really in for me, and we can cheat slightly and talk about the next minute, just, just a little bit is about their despondency because when they walk out of that justice department and you know, who knows if they're the same building, there might've been that trickery, but when they walk out and they are the only two, again, it's that thing. They're the only two people that are walking out of the building at the time. They look like ants. They look like tiny models in like, you know, you know, you know, two centurions walking out of some, you know, piece of Roman architecture because so much of Washington has that sort of Rome feel, you know, you know, or at least contemporary Rome feel, um, very empirical look, um, in the architecture, but it's that, giant building and then these tiny guys walking out of there i think i think it's um they're not walking into the building like we had when they go into the library of congress there's a bit of hope you know they're standing apart but they're not the building's not dwarfing them they they start to get dwarfed by the actual reality of there's no there's no you know proof here that this occurred and and so i think yeah like i agree with you it is a, it's definitely a weird choice but they make they make lots of weird editorial choices here but they're all in my mind, they all just kind of do something. You're like, whoa, that's a choice. It's a jarring switch. And it's, it's always surprising to me when, you know, movies made long before home video was even a thing. Something that you really wouldn't pick up on except on repeated view. So like, mm-hmm. we don't know that Joe is the guy from Justice they've been talking to unless you put together that Bernstein mentioned his name was Joe in that, in that scene in the apartment. And um, and that you registered that his name was Joe when they were outside of the right. White House earlier in the film. True, true, true. Uh, and then, and even in the, in the uh, I'm, I'm going to step on the next minute a little bit, when you mentioned when they leave the building, actually it was right before they exit the building, um, Woodward's going over the notes and he's like, I have another call. Like he's repeating what we thought the conversation was. And then he says, did you mean Rob Holderman? Yes. Or Bob Holderman? Yes, I meant Bob Holderman. Like we didn't hear that. We, we, our scene ends when, 
he said uh, John Halderman or something like, yeah. like some, you know, some different, you know, Halderman. So we, you know, it, it presumes some second follow-up phone call that just, you know, we didn't hear. <laughs> and it, it's just, um, to me, it just seems a little bit like, and maybe we were spoiled by the fact that we see the other, we see um, uh, the Jane Alexander character and Sloan, we can tell that they feel outside pressure. That's mm. why they're, you know, either keeping silent or changing their story or whatever. Whereas Joe just seems like to turn on a dime. Like, and we presume somebody's got to him, um, but we don't actually see why. He just like, it just seems like a, a bit more of a device to pull the rug out from under them at their lowest time or whatever. Yeah, I, I totally, look, I don't think, I don't necessarily think you're wrong because the device is that we want them at that lowest point. So if you're a writer, you have, we, there's a way that you have to do it and his hostility has to be there. But I think the way that I've always read it is the minute that they get the profile that their story is wrong, no one wants to talk to them anymore. Right. And right. that's the reinforcing point from Deep Throat, which comes a little bit later, which is like you, you did something worse. You did something worse than getting it right you got it right, but you didn't have your facts straight. And now they're emboldened to come against you. So like, it'd be much like, you know, for example, it would be like someone going, oh, there were 200,000 deaths. And, and, and then, you know, someone in the Trump team, they hang on that and they go, actually, it's 199,323. Yeah. And so if you're just going to get your facts incorrect, we can't have a dialogue. And you're like, yeah. oh, I'm sorry I rounded up by 700. Like, right. you know what I mean? Like it's those, sort, you know, sorry, 7,000. It's like, whatever it is, it's just some of those shorthands that people like hang on it. Um, and I know, you know, we've both had petty friends or schoolmates or college mates in our lives or university mates in our lives where you like get into an argument with them over a semantic and you're like, I'm not arguing with you about the semantic. Let's just stop that. Like yeah. you can get rid of that. Let's actually have a talk about what we're talking about here. And so I think, um, I've always read that clarification is they just assumed he meant Bob Holderman because there's only one Holderman. And so they're like, we're going to read you back these notes to make sure that there's only one Holderman. You told us it was this guy. And for me, he's just like, you're gone. You're done. You're cooked. He's yeah. telling them everything that we need to know. They're cooked. And it's funny you say, uh, if I could step on the next minute, just one more way that they, um, the, uh, we're talking about people, you know, don't want to talk to them at all. There's a scene after Joe, the FBI agent, walks away where another government guy comes out of steps out of his office, sees Bert, Woodward and Bernstein, and kind of like takes a step back <laughs> as if it was like, you know, the hall monitor catches them outside. Ew, or I'm not, I'm not, I don't want any part of those two. I don't no. want to go near them. I don't want, I don't want that stink. And that's the biggest thing also is. His hostility is imagine being a guy, you you only want to talk to Bernstein over the phone at home at night right. where you assume that no one's listening or yeah. daylight where you're in control of a situation where you're trying to plant surveillance on these guys where you're in complete control. They come to his yeah. office at the department right. of justice. It's like, I don't need you guys here. And that's, that's why I, that's, that's where I flip and say, I sympathize with the, you know, he has to be, you know, very loudly, like, I'm, I'm not talking to you. I don't know you guys. Like, yeah, I, I want nothing great. to do with you. Like, I, I get why he has to. Yeah, because if he, because if he, if he, if he was compelled to talk to them, like, as in just in general, if he was compelled right. to talk to them, now he's got the extra added burden of, holy shit, these guys are going to throw me under the bus. Mm-hmm. And if I, if I don't, if I'm, if I'm not ready to, to have this conversation with them and to have this dialogue with them and to push them away publicly, even though later he does talk to Bernstein, he's like, right. cause there's that, you know, 
what we learn later in one of the greatest scenes of the movie, in my opinion, um, is that he gets back in touch with Joe and he's like, you heard what you wanted to hear. He didn't mention, like they didn't mention it. You know, yeah. they didn't, he didn't mention it at, at these briefings. That's what you, you know, you misheard. So it's a, I, there is nothing in this movie. I mean, obviously there's one thing I want to pick up on what you said, which is really important is um, there are very functional things. And I think this is where the balancing act is so hard and also so like magnificent in this movie. There is such a balancing act between functional things that help you propel you to the end of a story and that help you keep you engaged and, and, and keep you just, you know, glued to the screen that also have to balance with the facts when you're doing a docudrama like that, like, so, you know, and, and especially something that people were steeped in like right now, Watergate, you know, we can, you know, I, I, I learned about, you know, this from like, you know, Watergate and things like that from, you know, the Simpsons before anything else, before I even knew what it was, right? Like the Simpsons and then JFK. And then you're like, Oh, cool. Conspiracy theories. Oh, Watergate. Great. You know, you go down those rabbit holes. But I think that one thing that is so great is the ability to go. Yes, they did go and check with their sources and it's in the book. And for people reading the book, it's as rewarding, but it's just how it then plays out and and what things have been slightly tweaked for, for dramatic effect. And I never, I never begrudge dramatic effect as long as the impact continues to resonate as long as it continues to work like it's 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 there but yeah man this is just you know perfect movies can and i love the appreciation and the and the the scrubbing back through um they they seem even in the 95 like even in 95 when heat was made michael mann is not thinking that 25 years later people can have it on blu-ray and watch it under a microscope and watch it over and over again it's just but i think that they're hoping that's a dream of a great film is that it will endure and people will want to study the living daylights out of it. And I think that this movie just has that in spades. But I just picture somebody in, you know, 76 going to see it the first time and loving it and like going to see it multiple times. And like on what viewing did they catch, you know, the fact that like, <laughs> Oh, this was, this is Joe, the justice, you know, um, the guy at justice and, you know, who told them it was Haldeman. Then he said it wasn't Haldeman and, and that. So. I think I think it's the same thing. Why we love the Vincent Hannas. We don't need to know about all the people necessarily around the Hannah at the time. It's like if they're so good at their job, we're good. Like we can trust yeah. them. And I think that that's a real fun foundational thing. You can be a viewer, and I don't begrudge anyone the way that they view. But if you can be a viewer who sort of trusts the aptitude of whether it's you know sometimes you can be watching an antagonist like a killer or a mafia leader like you know Tony Soprano etc., or you can watch like a cop or a journalist or you know, just a, a hero figure. If you can watch them and trust their aptitude, you can then just, you might let things glide off you. Like I'm going to miss right. some stuff, but I'm still engaged. They know what they're talking about. So I'm just going to stay with them. <laughs> and yeah. it's like, and if you can do that, it's, it's super helpful. Cause I, even something contemporary like spotlight, if you don't follow every name of every significant right. Bostonian figure or whatever. Like I'm not as familiar with spotlight in any way, shape or form as I am presidents, but I can definitely say that like I've seen spotlight four or five times and there's certain names that get said at certain parts of that movie. And I'm like, which person is that again? Is that, Oh yeah, that's that guy. And it's only because the next scene they go to that guy <laughs> and I wouldn't have known and his name. I even have that with, with presidents. Cause I'm, 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 you know, viewings in preparation for the show when, um, when Bernstein, 
you know, calls the guy from his office. Uh, I'm going to count to 10 if I hang up. Like that voice to me sounded like Sloan. Like I just thought that was yeah. Sloan. It's like, all right, Merit, man, you got you got a straight man. You know what I'm up to? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that sounds like, uh, is it Stephen Collins, the actor? Yeah. Um, so the, I just thought that was Sloan. Then, you know, on, on, on a subsequent viewing, I was like, no, that's his, it's some other guy at Justice that we, you know, may or may not know. Yeah. Um, but I- aptitude is, great, is a great word that, like, because so many of the, um, so many of this, this series episodes have talked about, you know, process porn and just like people, you know, talented people doing their jobs well. And yeah, wow, that's, uh, hey, I would, even Vincent Hanna, even Vincent Hanna, he loves people who do their jobs well. Look at yeah. this guy. He's sharp at this. This crew is good. This crew their is MO, good. they're good. Yeah. That's, that's what we love. And, and even though, you know, for as much as, for as much as about a process in general, like I, it's such a great dynamic. Um, and I'm, I'm talking, you know, about the movie broader than just our minute, but just like, the dynamic between Woodward and Bernstein, how when we first meet them, you know, Woodward's the new kid on the block, Bernstein's the amateur, but at every turn, Bernstein's the one that throws a tantrum. And it's, <laughs> it's the new guy who's like, you think bitching about it, it's going to help our story get in there. And, you know, it's like, he's right. We don't have enough sources. You know, like, um, like it's, it's Woodward is the voice of reason that has to, you know, tone down this veteran. And, and uh, also because Bernstein at the time, he's like a false veteran. He's like been a young guy. Like there's a difference between, you know, I think of, you know, I think of my 20 year old self at where I thought I knew absolutely everything. And I think, God, what a twerp, like in retrospect, what a twerp, what a, how entitled do you think you are to have those opinions? And then much later you, you feel like you grow in, you grow into your, your insight um, and I think at those moments, like he's like, Oh, I've been in this for 16 years or whatever. Like he's just young. He's, he's been in the system for a long time and he's hitting a ceiling that he doesn't realize that he's at. And then there's a, there's a breakthrough moment and they learn from each other. Um, right. and, and I, I love, yeah, that William Goldman, who kind of invented the contemporary buddy cop movie with Butch Cassidy and Sundance and like the template has been stolen ad infinitum, you know, does a great twist on it here because you know, the, the, the stoic and the junior is kind of dragging back his contemporary who's same in age, but like greater in experience because they've both got things to learn, like natural talents that they need to enhance. And, and, and I, I love that learning from each other in this because Bernstein does have tantrums, but then Bernstein gets the best Woodward moment of the whole movie, which is the bookkeeper scene. Like that's the piece de resistance. He has to be deliberate and slow and listen and not bully people. Otherwise she'll run away. And uh, it's it's just, and, I, and I'm so glad we don't see the the manic side of that scene. Like when he's giving Woodward his notes on tissue paper and toilet paper and stuff. Like, you know, a lesser filmmaker might have shown him in the bathroom in the bathroom scribbling. scribbling yeah. yeah, you know, and it's like nope. He just, we just we know after the fact. Like, oh, of course that he he excused himself to go, you know, scribble notes madly and you know not seem like a maniac. Of, you know, <laughs> down each detail. So. Um, that's right. Can I say a couple other things about like the film? Please, please. I would expect nothing less that I've discovered, you know, thanks to the, the rewatchings from the series. Um, I'm, I'm largely off fast food. I ate too much in my twenties and you could look at pictures of me from that era, (laughs) but this film makes me want McDonald's more than anything, (laughs) which is like, the day so I was born a year before this came out. So like the decor of the McDonald's and mm-hmm. the 
on the quarter pounder box and everything just like makes me yearn for that like childhood flavor of what McDonald's was. And like, yes. remember that it just like, it was a meal for, you know, yeah. working people. Like, like they just sat down over a table at McDonald's. Like it wasn't a hangover indulgence. Like it is for me now. <laughs> like it's like, that was sustenance uh, at one time. So um, in a way it's a commercial for McDonald's. And I, I, one of the episodes I just listened to talked about David Shire's score coming in, I think in the first deep throat meeting. And it, it didn't occur to me until the discussion of that, how much that sort of, those sort of cyclical scales, um, like, and I, I can't sort of picture it now, like, do, 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 do. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, Bernard Herman in Vertigo, like that, like, same up and you know there's ups and downs and you know sort of the cycle um um back and forth and the only the other thing i wanted to mention which i would i would get be interested in your opinion on is i feel like and it's been brought up on the podcast before about how at the beginning of this movie you're forced to appreciate like these guys didn't know what they were getting into like woodward got a call about some random burg you know bungled robbery uh at the democratic headquarters this is one case where i feel like starting with the end and then cutting you know like almost like even though even though the public in 1976 knew what the ending was just like yes to just to really drive home the gravity i feel like starting with nixon's resignation statement or like even the opening to it and then fade to black and then say you know two years and two months earlier only to sort of frame the fact that this was such a nothing burger if, if they could abuse a horrible word <laughs> That this was like, you know, that this was nothing. Bradley, three quarters of the movie, you know, through, he says, you know, nobody's ever heard of Watergate. Nobody gives a shit. Like, <laughs> like just to appreciate, you know, almost. That's a, that's your contemporary lens. Because, yeah. people, because, because the, uh, the masterstroke of this movie for the people at the time is imagine someone right now making a movie about this election and then giving you archival footage True. of the election. You'd be like, we know, bro. Yeah. It's like, like I can't fucking get away from this. It's on every news channel internationally for weeks and it's on Twitter and it's everywhere. Like it's so the, the everywhereness of it. Um, I don't think can, we can understand. And like you and I, regardless of America or Australia, I don't think people even of our age can synthesize how everywhere it was at this, at this moment in time. And so it's people who experienced it that, that just go, it's a smart point because you just enter and exit at a point in time. Right. And, you know, one of the things that they wanted to do, so, and you even look at it from a structural perspective, they were going to end the movie. Their original design for the movie was that they would end it with Nixon's resignation and going away on the helicopter. Mm-hmm. Like that, that final fate of these guys writing the stories and the teletype wasn't necessarily the teletype. It was like Nixon going away because the movie begins with Nixon coming in on a helicopter and the movie was going to end with him leaving on one. And it was Robert O. Wolf, who's the editor, who was actually a staunch Republican. Like, you know, funnily enough, he edited for Sam Peckinpah. He liked right. guns. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> imagine that. Um, but he said, he, 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 for whatever you say about him as a, as a, as a person who was into politics, he said, that's just so obvious. It's so ramming this point home. You don't need to do it. 
is like, it feels just so rote, like it's going to age poorly. And so they turned it into the teletype. And I think I can't remember who said it along the way in the show and I'm sorry, but you know, the bookends of history are bigger than this movie. And uh, I think that that's such a smart point to just inject yourself into a moment in time to tell your part of the story, which is actually half of the president's men book to, to kind of synthesize what they did and what happened. And then the rest of it's bigger than them. It's bigger than this movie. It's bigger than the actors in it because then you start to open up to like, we need to see Nixon. We need to see a Nixon engage in this movie. And it's just, I feel like it's a masterstroke, but the, I, I don't disagree with you because Ingu Kang is a te- great TV critic for the Hollywood reporter was on the show. She wasn't as familiar with the movie straight off the bat. And she's like, I can't, you know, I can't sort of place it. People who aren't as familiar with this political time, I get it as a reflex, you know, put, put what happens at the end. Um, but I think for anyone who's not interested by the end to find the details, to do the right. cursory Wikipedia or to watch it, I think like the movie hasn't worked on you. But for me, the moment that I really like properly watched and appreciated this movie, it was like, well, I guess I need to go and find every Nixon book because yeah. every Wood, Wood and Bernstein book, I need to go and read all the books because I want to know everything that happened and all these people and the longer stories. And, but yeah, I, I definitely think it's not, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. I just think it's like such an of its time choice right then to go. We have to have some restraint. Yeah. I, I think, I just think you're, you're probably right. I think it's just something for, you know, when put in the context of, of the modern era, maybe people who don't appreciate how, what a teeny little kernel it was that they acted on that, you know, snowballed into something yeah. huge. And I mean, if anything, I would, I would love a whole movie on just, Woodward, what we see as Woodward's last meeting with Deep Throat, where he kind of cracks and he's like, I'm tired of your chicken shit game. Like, what do you need to do? Which did remind me on one of the, these recent viewings, like, reminded me a little, a little bit of, you know, Glenda the Good Witch, who's like, oh, you had the power to go back all the time. Like, oh, you could have told me this like three garage visits ago. <laughs> like, why now when I'm, you know, only now do you sort of, uh, it's, uh and I think, look, it the, the best one is, you know, Adam Sandler and the wedding singer. This would have been yeah. great if you brought it to my attention. Yeah. Yesterday. Yeah. Exactly. Well, that's, that's the perfect moment to end on John Peaklin. Thank you so much, Please. mate, for your friendship and your support and you, um, you know, sharing and getting the show around and, and doing everything that you do. Um, I appreciate you. And, uh, just thanks so much for being part of the show. It wouldn't, it, it, you know, it kind of doesn't feel right. Um, on such an extensive project with such a supporter uh, like you to not at least have a quick chat with you if I can, uh, thank cause you. we have such enjoyable chats via DM. Yes, indeed. Thank you very much for having me. And um, as I as I told you, anybody who leaves a rating for OHM Productions on Apple iTunes gets a gets a guest spot. So that, of course, is the wonderful CEO of Memes for One Hit Minute Productions, John P. Glynn. And no, he's completely wrong. Not everyone who leaves a great review of our show gets to be on our show. He is just a special individual, and I love talking to him and. If there's anything that I've really enjoyed, it's the genuinely awesome people who have listened to the show and have interacted with the show and have been part of the show. And John's just one of those special guys right from the outset of One Heat Minute. So, John, thank you so much for being a part of the show. Again, if you want to follow him, it's at John P. Glynn, G-L-Y-N-N, um, for all of that good stuff. Thank you so much for listening. This is episode 124. We have had a stream of amazing guests in the last little bit, and it is not going to stop. So hold on to your butts. 
at ATPM Pod for all of our updates of, or our episode drops. Again, we're going to be finishing the entire series on the 29th of November at One Blake Minute for myself on Instagram and Twitter. If you want to follow the show uh, at the website, it's oneheatminute.com and you can click through to all the President's Minutes. We'll catch you on another episode very, very soon. <laughs>